for those uh, to whom it applies, um, I have a question. Not rhetorical. I do want to know. I have a question. Uh, just for those who, who it applies to. Why is it that those of you that are Kentucky fans are Kentucky fans? And I want to know. What, what, what's, they're the greatest team in the state of Kentucky. They're the greatest team in the state of Kentucky. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> that was sort of a mixed response, by the way. So, so they're the greatest team, he says, anyway, in the state of Kentucky. Okay, what, what, what are some other reasons why, why those of you that are Kentucky fans pull for Kentucky? I mean, that can't be it, right? What? Patino left you. Some folks say you have him back, you know. Uh, what's that? We all we can keep him. Okay, thanks. What else? Why else you pull for Kentucky? Tradition. Okay. How many of you that are Kentucky fans grew up in a family of Kentucky fans? Yeah. See, all you families just need prayer and back in God's will. <clears throat> you know, well, that's probably true. We probably do. It's, it, it's, it's bad. It's bad. Of course, if, you, if you're new with this, you know I'm not a Kentucky fan, okay? I grew up in Louisville. I'm a Louisville fan, which is pitiable in some ways, I guess, but honorable in others. That's right. Absolutely. Yes. I knew I'd have some support. I knew. Yeah, that's right. I was going to say I knew I'd have some. Appreciate that. I'm a, I'm a Louisville fan. I always have been. I, I, uh, my dad is a Louisville fan, and, and, and yet my, my, even my dad's family was divided. He's got two brothers. The, he and the youngest brother are diehard Louisville fans, and, and my, my, my uncle, my dad's youngest brother, uh, not that they're, you know, this is very rampant. He's the most obnoxious Louisville fan you'll ever meet, and, um, and I've, met, I've met some obnoxious Kentucky fans. He'll, he'll rival you. I guarantee he's right there with you. Then my dad's middle brother is a diehard Kentucky fan. I mean, so they're house divided, you know. Maybe you've got some of that. But, you know, it's interesting, the first things off the top of your head, why do you pull for the team that you pull for? You may not be a Kentucky fan, you may not be a sports fan, but if you pay attention, people pull for teams for a variety of reasons. They follow them for a variety of reasons. One would be, and Drew mentioned this, and when you say that they're the greatest team in the state of Kentucky, you're referring to the fact that they win all the time. They win, 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 win. We like teams, we like to follow teams that win. Most of the time, the teams that don't win don't have a very big following, do they? That's just the way that it is. Everybody, it seems, when a team kind of goes south, the bandwagoners and the Fairweather fans are nowhere to be found, right? So teams that win tend to gather a, a large following. I ask you how many of you kind of grew up in a of Kentucky fans, a lot of times you pull for whoever you just kind of were taught to pull for. That's just the way it is. Well, kind of, you know, it's just family or historical loyalty. We just, we're Kentucky fans around here and that's the way we do it. And if you were to become a Louisville fan and cross over into God's will, you would probably, <laughs> you would probably be disowned. Um, and, you know, and of course, and Jesus said it, that, you know, the road is wide that leads to destruction. The road is narrow, though, that leads to life and few are those who find it and go cards. And so, um, <clears throat> Anyway, I mean, there's, there's some biblical tie-ins. Anyway, I, I think, anyway, maybe I'm stretching it. But, but, but maybe some of you grew up Kentucky fans. It's just what your family did. Or, you know, hey, around here, uh, you know, it, it's kind of unpopular to be a Louisville fan. It's everybody, you know, well, I guess I'm a kid. I'll being a Kentucky fan because I don't want to be that guy and so you let me be be that guy but you know there's there, it's interesting to me to, to look at fan psychology why do we follow the teams that we follow because they win because I grew up doing it because everybody around me does those things and 
And there, there's one team in particular, and I, I am a Louisville fan. I'm a Cincinnati Reds fan as well. But there is one team that, that I will always, 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 above all, be loyal to. And that is my high school alma mater, the baseball team at Pleasure Ridge Park High School. Uh, and I'm not loyal to them just because they, they've won six state championships and the winningest coach in Kentucky high school history. And certainly that doesn't hurt, obviously. But, but I'm loyal and will always put them as my, my top loyalty because I experienced it. And I know the coach. And I love him. And I know that he loves me. And I, and I know that, that he cares for me. And he and that program will always have my top loyalty because I experienced what it was like there. And so far even beyond University of Louisville basketball and Cincinnati Reds baseball, my high school alma mater, that coach, will have my greatest loyalty. And I think when it comes to the Christian life, I think there are some of us who maybe follow Jesus or at least say that we're following Jesus because we want to win in life and get whatever blessings we may think are available to us because we follow Jesus. I think maybe there are some who follow because, well, that's sort of always the way that I've been. I just grew up in church and I haven't ever known anything different. My family went to church. They were Christians. And so I'm a Christian too. And I think there are some who follow or claim to follow Jesus at least because we live in a place here in western Kentucky where still most people would claim some affiliation to Christ. Maybe not real strong affiliation, but this is still a place where if you claim zero affiliation with church or with God or you you just, you know, it, it it's not exactly popular. I believe, however, all of those reasons are inadequate reasons to follow Jesus. They are, they are inadequate. Uh, I think those who really follow him have experienced him. And they understand him, and they have been loved by him, and they have loved him in return, much like I described my high school alma mater. Those who truly follow and truly know Jesus have experienced him. We're in a series on the book of Job, and if you want to get there, turn to the middle of your Bible. If you don't know where it is, you'll probably hit somewhere in Psalms. Turn back to the left just a little bit, because it goes Esther, Job, Psalms, and then Proverbs. And so we're going to be in the book of Job. It looks like the word Job, J-O-B. That's where we're going to be. And we're in a series uh, where we're asking the question, what do we do when life doesn't make sense? Am I cutting out too much? We just need to go, we just need to go to turn them both on or whatever. It doesn't matter. Um, what, what do we do when life doesn't make sense? I mean, how, how do I handle the suffering that comes my way? What do I do when God seems absent or distant or if he's like not even there, if he doesn't even exist? What do I do when I feel this way? And I'm so down. How do I handle those things? Now, I've promised you that we are not going to go verse by verse through the book of Job, all 42 chapters, sort of a few verses at a time. But we have got to ramp up a little bit and build the context for understanding what Job goes through and how he responds to these things and what we can learn from them. We are all going to experience times, and some of you maybe have experienced it this week or in recent weeks, when life just doesn't make sense. You can't explain it. You can't understand it. Things around you are happening. Things inside of you are happening. That just, I, I, don't, I don't get it. I don't understand. I don't know what to do. I'm having tremendous doubts. My faith is weak. My spirit is empty. And, and I'm tired. And I don't know what to do. Job experiences all those things. He's a man who even seems to live right. And he's almost, it seems, punished for it. 
So what do we do when life doesn't make sense? We've been setting this up with some questions. We've looked at what is it that God really wants from me? How is it that I'm supposed to live? And then last week what we saw was, was what happens if I live that way? I mean, there's some guarantees, right? God's going to bless me and so on as we, we looked at that. Today we're going to get into the question of why is it that I follow God in the first place? Sort of like the question I asked you from the very beginning. Why, if you're a Kentucky fan, are you a Kentucky fan? Have you thought about it? Why is it, if you claim to follow Jesus Christ, why is it really that you're doing that? So Job chapter 1 is where we'll be, just the first chapter there. We're going to look this morning at verses 6 through 11. Verses 6 through 11. What we've learned so far is that Job was an incredible guy. He was the kind of guy that God wanted him to be. There was nothing artificial about him. He was a man of integrity. It says he shunned evil. He he, he feared God. Those were the things about Job. And as a result, Job experienced tremendous blessing. Back during that time, God primarily showed his blessing to people by giving them material things. We learned last week that's not always the case, but that's what Job experienced. And we saw that in verses 1 through 5. And we pick it up this morning in verse 6. Look at it with me. One day, the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord asked Satan, where have you come from? From roaming through the earth, Satan answered him, and walking around on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? No one else on earth is like him, a man of perfect integrity who fears God and turns away from evil. Satan answered him, does Job fear God for nothing? Haven't you placed a hedge around him and his household and everything he owns? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions are spread out in the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he owns and he will surely curse you to your face. So get an idea here what's happening. Okay. We don't get full explanation as to what's really going on in heaven that day. We just know that God has sort of a a court, if you will, and they appear before him and there's Satan along with them. And God says to Satan, what have you been up to? And Satan says, well, I've been roaming around the earth, checking things out. Satan, of course, the word there means adversary or challenger. We don't get that this is the Satan that we know of through all of Scripture, but we understand that as Scripture fills it out, that's who we're talking about here. And so God says, hey, probably if you've been checking things out, you've noticed Job, haven't you? Now he's something. Look what God says about him. He says, he is a man, in, in, uh, in verse 8, of perfect integrity who fears God and turns away from evil. That's God talking about Job. So is Job legit? Absolutely. 100%. God says this guy is exactly the way that he needs to be. What does Satan say in response? Well, yeah. Why wouldn't he be? I mean, look at what you've given him. I mean, just go back to it. I mean, he's got all this stuff. Seven sons, three daughters, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, a large number of servants. He's the greatest man. That means the richest man in all the earth. Well, yeah, God. I mean, who wouldn't follow you if you gave him all that stuff? I mean, think about it. If this morning, if I guaranteed the community that I would give them personally some money out of the offering... So it's your money, I guess. I would personally give them your money if they showed up, right? We would probably have a few more people here. Well, okay, yeah, you know, you're going to pay me to be there. I guess it's no big deal. I'll come and listen to you talk for a while. That's kind of what what Satan is saying about Job. Well, yeah, of course he does. I mean, you've protected him. You've hedged him in, basically. There's nothing that can touch him. You've blessed everything about him. And Satan says to God, what? Take all that away and what? He'll curse you to your face. Do you know who Satan is really attacking here? It's not Job. Who, who's Satan attacking? 
That's God. He's saying about God, there is nothing about you worth following if not for what you give to your people. Nothing. You, in and of yourself, God, are not worth following if your people are not experiencing those kinds of blessings that they want. Now, we're going to get into the story in the coming weeks, and we're going to see that God proves very emphatically that there is, in fact, so much about him that we should follow simply because of that. And this morning, what I'm going to do, honestly, is I'm going to give you more than you can possibly handle and write down. Now, you see, man, we got a short outline this morning, and I promise you it's not short. That's just what's going to be on the screen, okay? We're going to be here at about 3 o'clock, okay? <laughs> Yeah, nobody got up. All right, good. Okay, so we really are. No, we're, we're going to try to roll through this as quickly as we can. What we're going to focus on today is what Satan said about Job. Essentially that, Lord, if all that stuff were gone, there's nothing about you that a man should want to follow you. There is nothing about you worth following except what you give. Essentially the question is, why do I really follow God anyway? You're here this morning out of some desire to follow God in some way. Some, for, I don't care if you, if, if you are uh, a person who doesn't claim faith in Jesus. You showed up here at a church today. There is something in you that says, oh, okay, I'll check it out. Or maybe you're a, a devoted follower of Christ and you really want to follow God. The question then here in the Old Testament, then of course in the New Testament and today is, why is it that we follow God anyway? Uh, I want to just take a brief little caveat here. Uh, there is a distinction, and I've written it there on your outline, the, the God of the Bible. We're not talking about some nebulous God that might be you, might be me, might be the trees in my front yard or something. That's not what I'm talking about, okay? We're talking about the God of the Bible, the one who has revealed himself and inspired that those things revealed about him would be written down in Scripture and handed down to us. It's the God of the Bible who came to us in the form of Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life, who died a substitutionary death, who was raised again truly because he was truly dead, and who now exists in heaven one day to return to judge the living and the dead. That's the God of the Bible that we're talking about. Why is it? What are some reasons that you could follow the God of the Bible? Let me give you two reasons this morning that I believe people would choose to follow this God of the Bible. The first is what God gives. What God gives. I think this is the reason why many people follow him. Same reason why many people would follow a sports team. Because of what they get out of it. There, there are three, three little subcategories. You're going to write these down. They're not going to be on the screen. Again, just what you see on your outline is going to be on the screen. But maybe you write some of this stuff down. Some of the things that God gives, God gives stuff sometimes. There are material blessings sometimes that come from following God. You know why? Because you make better financial decisions a lot of times. Not always do you get those blessings, but if you follow God's ways, typically you're going to make better decisions, and so things will be taken care of in a different way. We like the fact that we, we're promised that God will meet our needs. We hear that we'll be blessed in our work, in our finances, in our health, in our family. Whatever has been missing or lacking in your life, God will make up for those things. We like that, and so we follow God because of the stuff that we receive. Not only stuff, but feelings. You know, if you follow the Lord, you'll never feel bad about yourself again. I mean, all that negative emotion will just be swept away by the power of God's Holy Spirit, and you'll never experience those things because you are more than a conqueror. That'll preach, won't it? 
We like the feeling that comes from God invading my life and taking over. And I like the feeling that, you know what, I'm, I'm not a broken down sinner, but, a, a, but, but someone who is now a saint who's been saved by God's grace. I like feeling better about life and about other people and about my place in eternity and, and, and about uncertainty. I like feeling better about those things, and so I'll follow God. Another thing that we, I believe people follow God for is status. You'll be a person here, Job is respected. Person of integrity. Somebody that people look up to. And I'll, I'll say this, I really do believe it. That if you, if you will follow God's principles, particularly as say they're laid out in the book of Proverbs, and you live wisely and so on, people will look to you for answers. There's a status that comes with following God. But I think... In fact, I'm convicted of, I really believe, I just think, that those are inadequate reasons to follow God. I believe those are spiritually childish reasons to follow God. Do you understand what I mean? They, they, are, they are less than what we are to follow God for. Well, why do kids love certain people? Because they give them stuff, right? Why do your kids love their grandparents so, so much? So much. So I just want to be with Nana and Papa all the time. Grandma and Grandpa all the time. You know, why do they give them stuff all the time? Can't keep up with that as a parent, can you? Can't give them all that stuff. Well, they don't love me like they love their grandparents. They, they, they like stuff, right? Kids like stuff. We like getting stuff from God. We like feeling better, don't we? Kids love people that make them feel good. And we like, as children, we like for somebody to elevate me to a different status. Help me out. And that's what Satan said that Job was, a spiritual child who follows you, God, only for what he can get out of it, only for what God gives. And when Christianity stops making some people happy, what do they do? They move on. Childish. Second reason that people follow God is not because of what God gives, but because of who God is. And this is the spiritual adult. The person who has moved past the elementary things, the, the less than adultish kind of things. This is what Satan said would never happen. No one God would follow you simply because of who you are. You got to give them stuff. Job would prove him wrong, but we're not quite there yet. Paul wrote about it in Philippians chapter 3. If you want to write down the reference, Philippians chapter 3. Paul said, essentially, I've done all these things trying to get to God and trying to make God happy. And ultimately, he realizes those things are all childish and they're all just garbage, he says, because the one thing that I want now, he says, is simply to know Christ, to gain Christ Jesus. He says, I just want him. I just want who he is. And spiritual adults aren't following God so that he will make them happy, but so that they can bring him glory. So you get the point. One of these reasons is about me. The other is about him. And so we're going to settle in for just a few minutes. I told you, we're going to roll quickly, and you're going to find out why. We're going to roll quickly through who, who God is. You're going to see two little categories there, and, and yet there's a bunch underneath of each of those. This will be, and I, my, my point, okay, just so you know, my point is to make it more than we can handle this morning. <laughs> So you're going to say, hold, 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 time. hold on a second. I didn't get that last one. What was that last one? Ask me on the way out the door. I'll email you my notes, whatever you want. But we're not going to be able to get it all this morning. I want it to overwhelm us with who God is. That's my whole point this morning. 
It will not be, I'll promise you this, it will not be eminently practical as you walk out the door. You'll say, well, boy, okay, I know what to do this week. Man, I feel better about things. I didn't know what to do walking in. I feel better now because you're not going to feel better about knowing what to do this week. But I pray and I hope that you will be overwhelmed by who God is. And I truly believe that that will change your week. And I believe that's what we need. Uh, there's a book called Nala, The Knowledge of the Holy by a man named A.W. Tozer. And he, he wrote and summarized 18 attributes of God. I've categorized them into two different categories. The first of which that we find is that God is great. God is great. So let's see if we can keep up with who God is right here. Who is he? First of all, God is great. Let me give you some things that Tozer talks about that's summarized from all of Scripture, and I think they're dead on. We're, I'm just going to give you the phrases. You ready? Self-existent. Self-existent. That means God has no origin. The greatness of God, He's beyond us. He is self-existent. I didn't create myself. I, I, I didn't always exist. God created me. He always existed. Can I explain that? No. Had a young man come up to me and said, where did God come from? Try explaining that. Try thinking about it for more about 10 seconds and your brain will explode. You just melt down. I don't know how... Uh, let me go do something else. You know, turn on the TV. I don't, I don't know. He is self-existent. He, he, he came from where? From himself. What? He is great. He is beyond us. When Moses said, who is it that I should say is sending me? What did he say? Tell him I am who I am. What in the world does that mean? It means I am. I've always been. I always will be. I am self-existent. I don't, you don't, don't worry about who I am. I am. Does it make any sense to you? Probably not. That's part of the greatness of God. He blows us away. He is self-existent, wholly outside our comprehension. Not only that, but he is self-sufficient. Self-sufficient. Guess what? He needs nothing, including what? Me. Doesn't need me. I've told you before, I joke, oh, what would Elm Grove do without me? Y'all hire a new pastor. Real quick, probably. God doesn't need me. And, and, and since we're making it personal, God doesn't need you either. I know y'all are special. I know they're just incredible people in this room. So smart, so talented. God doesn't need you at all. He is self-sufficient. I cannot add anything to God. He is self-sufficient. Whatever he is, he is in himself with no outside help and no outside need. He needs nothing from me or from anyone or from anything. God is self-sufficient. So for me to believe in him doesn't do him any favors. It doesn't add something to him. God's, oh boy, so good. I'm so glad. For me not to believe in him doesn't take anything away from God. For the whole world to turn their back on him does not make him in need. God did not create us because he needed us. God did not create us as the, the terrible lyrics of the song say, so that he wouldn't have heaven without us. He don't need us. Self-sufficient. He needs no one. My importance comes not from me, but from him. What, that he created me and he died for me. That's what makes me important. He needs no one, but he'll work through anyone who has faith. A third term is he is infinite. If you know how to spell finite, F-I-N-I-T-E, you can put an I-N in front of it. You get infinite. This is kind of tough for, for, I'm not giving you the words, you've got to spell them. 
basically means he has no limits. All we know is matter, time, space. God can't be really conceived of in those terms. We can't, we can't fathom who he is. There are no words, no images, no thoughts, no expressions that can do him justice. We can't really describe him. He is infinite without, without limits. He is measureless. How big is God? As big as big can be. Uh, you know, how much does God weigh? Well, as much as something can weigh. I would... How strong is God? As strong as anything can be. But that still doesn't do it justice. We can't can't even get our minds around the limitless nature of God. He is limitless. He is also without growth. He is without addition. He is without development. And he cannot be completely explained. We just simply receive him for who he is. God is infinite. Can't be scaled down to fit our thinking. Not only that, but he's eternal. He is eternal. He has an endless kingdom with no beginning, no end. Eternal. Always was, always will be. Again, you want to start making your brain really hurt, start thinking about that. Some of you are going to walk away, man, like, dude, please don't ever preach another sermon like that, man. My brain's hurting. I can't. That's part of the point today. Overwhelm us with who God is. That was my prayer this morning before the sermon. Lord, overwhelm me with who you are. Nothing else. He is eternal. Time has no application to him. You realize that? We think about what? Tomorrow and later on today and whatever. None of that applies to God. None of it. He's already been there. He's already there. He's in our past. He's in our present. He's in our future. All at the same time. As if time matters to him. So God is never in a hurry. He's never early. He's never late. He's never up against a deadline like we are. And I, and I ask myself rhetorically, if, if that's the God that I serve, then why on earth do I scramble around so much all the time? <laughs> What's the response you get from a lot of people? How you doing? All oh, busy. I'm just busy. You realize God ain't ever busy? Ever? He's never busy. Because time does not matter to him. He is eternal. And guess what? When you were created, you were created to be an eternal being. You will spend eternity somewhere. He is also unchanging. The Bible tells us that for all generations, the Bible tells us that yesterday, today, and forever, He is the same. He never differs from Himself. He never gets better. He never gets worse. He's perfect all the time. 100%. Nothing about Him will ever be modified. He is unchanging. You realize our world is always changing, always, always, always? You realize that you are always changing? From the moment that you were born, you started to get older. Talked with some gentlemen this morning. And we laughed about how it doesn't feel in our minds as if we've gotten older, but boy, look in the mirror and realize I'm getting older. It's just the way it is. Nothing about God, however, changes ever. He is always the same. He never changes. So we can take some comfort in that. Do you realize that the reason we don't like change is because it scares us? Because we don't know how to deal with it? Because we've never experienced it before? God never changes Not only that, but he won't change his mind, by the way, about sin. God can't be talked into saying, well, okay, you know, I know it's 2017, and so let me get with the times. Realize God is, he is outside of history. And so when we talk about being on the right side or the wrong side of history and these different, whatever it may be, God has never changed his mind. He's outside of all of it. God's word is what it is. But I'll say this as well. God is not ever going to change his mind about the sinner either. God always loves the sinner. Always, always. God is also omniscient. 
omniscient. That is O-M-N-I-C-S. No, wait a minute. S-C-I-N-T. I've got it right here in front of me. I can't say it. O-M-N-I-S-C-I-N-T. Omniscient. What does that mean? He knows everything. He has perfect knowledge of everything all the time. Everything that has happened, everything that will happen, everything that is happening, and every person that has ever lived, past, present, or future, God has perfect knowledge. So he has no need to learn anything. In fact, he cannot learn anything. Because he has perfect knowledge. He never discovers anything. He never has an aha moment. Oh, well, I didn't know that. Man. Thanks for telling me. God never has those moments. He never has a surprise. He knows everything and he knows us better than we know ourselves. You know that God knows the things that nobody else knows about you? All stuff you've been hiding for years, he knows it. Every bit of it. And he knows it better than you know it. He understands you better than you understand yourself. Now that ought to scare you to death. And it ought to comfort you at the same time. Because the one who knows you best loves you most. Doesn't discard you. Doesn't throw you out. He is also all wise. So he's omniscient and he's all wise. His understanding is infinite. He understands everything to the nth degree. Our supposed wisdom and how smart we are and the things we understand, they're pathetic next to what God understands. And his wisdom is at the root of all truth. And it's always pure and it's always loving and it's always good. And he sees everything in perfect focus and he makes perfect plans. And all he does is done with the highest wisdom. Even the stuff that comes our way that we don't understand. He is also omnipotent. That's potent with an omni. Omnipotent. That means he has all power. All of it. All power. Now he has delegated some power, but he's never relinquished it. He has all power. And ours is a faith in a God who has all power perfectly within himself. He can do anything and requires no effort for him to do it. He is also transcendent. Transcendent. T-R-A-N-S-C-E-N-D-E-N-T. Transcendent. That means he's different. And not just different. He is completely other. You ever wonder why you can't understand some things about God sometimes? You ever wonder why you can't get your mind around eternity? You ever wonder why you can't get your mind around what he's doing? It's because he's, he's other. And yet so that we might understand what he wants us to understand about him. What did he do? He came near in the form of Jesus Christ. He is omnipresent. He said, I am with you always in Matthew 28. That means he is everywhere all the time. Always here. Always close to everything. Always next to everyone. There's no way to escape his presence, the psalmist told us. And there's no need, honestly, to ask for God's presence in your life. Lord, go with me. Okay. Why don't you ask something real here? I'm already there. I mean, don't we ask? We, you know, God, please be with me right now. He's already there. He's everywhere, all the time, omnipresent. And if you are a believer in Christ, who lives inside of you? God's Holy Spirit, right? He lives inside of you. Do I need to ask for God's presence with me? Nope. I take God's presence with me everywhere I go. Everywhere I go. His sacred space. And also in his greatness, he is sovereign. S-O-V-E-R-E-I-G-N. And that means he is free to do whatever he wills without interference. Nothing can hinder him. Nothing can compel him. Nothing can stop him. He has universal authority and there is no authority higher than his. He answers to no one. He doesn't answer to me if I don't understand. 
And it doesn't answer to you if you've got complaints. Answers to no one. So, God is great. We're going to roll through the next ones. All right? I got just a few minutes left. He is great, other, outside of us, overwhelming us. But not only is God great, but what? God is what? Do you already know it? Good. It's like the old prayer, right? God is great, God is good. Let us thank Him for our food, right? God is great and God is good. Tozer puts these categories out. He is kind. That means he is benevolent, full of goodwill. That he wants friendship with us. What is God like, you may say? What can I expect if I, if I follow this God of the Bible? Look at Jesus, who is full of kindness. He is kind and he is loving. Love that we don't deserve, love that we could not cause. The Bible tells us that God is love. Now let me just be careful real quick. That doesn't mean that love is God. It means that God is love. It is an eternal attribute of His. And this talks about His goodwill toward us. What does the Bible say in John chapter 3, 16? For God what? So loved. You know what that word means? So in this way. Here's how God loved. And what does it say? That He what? Gave. And it goes on to tell us that He gave His one and only Son so that whoever will believe in Him will not perish but will have eternal life. God's love is an active kind of love. So He is kind. He is loving. He is also holy. Part of His goodness is that He is holy. We look at who He is and we see our depravity, our sin, and we see this holy God. And folks, let me just tell you. If you think our our world, as the old saying goes, is going to hell in a handbasket... Take your eyes off the world and put your eyes on a holy God and see yourself and let me see myself for who God sees us as. We often, let me get on my soapbox, I guess, for just a second. We often, I heard this yesterday at the conference, and it, it, it made me angry and it made me sad all at the same time. We often, as American Christians, are more worried about our discomfort and the things that, that turn us away from being a Christian nation than we are about our own sin before a holy God. And I'm guilty of it too. God is holy. He is the standard. And that standard is made available to us through the blood of Jesus Christ. We can't get there on our own. We can receive His holiness and therefore be welcomed into His presence. If only we hide ourselves in Jesus Christ. He's holy and he's also faithful. Faithful. None of his attributes contradict each other. He's not torn. And he cannot cease to be what he is. And he can't act out of character. You ever ever see somebody do something and you say, Well, man, that's just out of character. I've never seen him do that before. God's never like that. He always acts in accordance with who he is. And this is important because he always keeps his word as well. He's faithful to his word. So one day when he promised heaven for those who believe in him, guess what's going to happen? He's faithful to his word. He's also just, which means he is righteous and he is the judge. Just means he acts like himself in every situation. He's going to do what God does. Why? Because he's just. He will punish sin because he is just. But because he is loving, he forgives sinners. Isn't it interesting how they work together? He is also merciful. Mercy means that we did not receive what we deserve. What do we deserve? The wages of sin is what? Death. 
What do we not receive if we believe in Jesus Christ? Death. They will not what? Perish, but what? Have everlasting or eternal life. Do you see God's mercy through the death of Jesus Christ? He's also gracious. Mercy means withholding what we deserve or not giving us what we deserve. Grace means giving us what we don't deserve. They will not perish. There's the mercy. But what will receive eternal life? There's the grace. God imputes righteousness where there was none before, and He takes away the debt that we owe. That's His grace. God is great. God is good. That's more than we can handle this morning. 18 things about God. You just wrote down probably 15 of them. You're missing three. And you spelled four of them wrong. Right? Just trying to hurry. I don't know how to spell that in the first place. Now I can't read my writing. What is it? You know... God is great and God is good. Now listen, His greatness can cause us to fear. And it is His goodness that stills all of our fears and takes them all away. And so the question for personal evaluation this morning is, why are you following Jesus Christ if you claim to be? Is it for what He gives or for who He is? You say, what difference does it make? Your reason for claiming to follow Jesus Christ will shape everything else about your life. It will be the engine that drives all the rest. The prayer for this week, in whatever you find yourself in, you see it there in parentheses, try to give you a little prayer. The end of each sermon is simply, Lord, give me you. Give me you. Maybe this morning that simply needs to be your prayer as you say, Lord Jesus, I I forsake my sins this morning. I, I commit my life totally to you. Who you are, I commit my life totally to you. I count myself, as Paul said, as dead to sin but alive to Christ and fully open to the work of God's Holy Spirit. And Lord, I want more than just the, the lifeless sort of commitment that comes with following you just for what you give. Lord, I want you. I wonder, would you pray that prayer this morning? Let's pray together. Take some time and what is it that you need to pray? Maybe you've been following the Lord for what you realize this morning, all the wrong reasons. For what He gives and you just back up and say, Lord, we'll follow you now because of who you are. Our Heavenly Father, we this morning on purpose have tried to digest more than we possibly could in a short time period. Lord, overwhelm us, we pray, with who you are for whatever situations we're facing, whatever upheaval there is in our lives, and certainly, Lord, we see it in our world. We pray that we would simply know you, that we'd begin there, and that, Lord, then and only then would you use us in your service to do whatever it is that you will in this world. Lord, give us you. Lord, for those this morning who need to confess sin, I pray that today they would forsake their sin, confess it, repent of it, and give their lives wholeheartedly to Jesus, the one who loves us and gave himself for us. May we be open, Lord, individually and as a church 
to whoever you want us to be because we're open to who you are. Thank you, Lord, for your presence with us, that you will go with us when we leave this place. Thank you that you are great and that you are good. Lord Jesus, give us you. That's our prayer. Amen.